This episode is made possible by our generous patrons. Welcome to the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm James. And I'm Luke. And this week, we discuss the first two episodes of David Benioff and D.B. Weiss's 2011 HBO series, Game of Thrones. Here we are in the world of Westeros. We are actually in Winterfell. We're in Essos. We're everywhere. I mean, I can't believe we're finally at the show. It's a huge show for me, and I'm excited to get into it. Yeah, me too, man. I uh, I loved reading this this book again. Uh, the first part part of it in the last episode, uh, we talked about it at length. If you wanted to check us out talking about the book only, uh, that was our previous episode, and and I shared how important this series is for me. Uh, and yeah, I'm excited for it. The, the TV show is sort of a different, whole different thing. And, uh, definitely had a kind of a different experience watching it after reading it so closely together, uh, which mm-hmm. I'm, you know, interested to talk to you about because, uh, it was a little different for me. Yeah. Which is crazy because we've both seen it multiple times and, you know, read the books yeah. a couple times each. So with all of the hindsight that we have, with all of the stuff that we know coming into, right. well, at least in the, in the show's version of, of this world and kind of their events, it it's just so interesting to go back to the very beginning and look at tiny baby Daenerys, tiny baby Jon Snow, and <laughs> yeah. um, just how awesome Ned Stark is and, and how he just sets up what the, because of how great he is and how charismatic of a, of a leader he seems to be. Uh, maybe not charismatic, but like stoic and honorable. Seeing that and knowing what's to come at the end of the season, just it just sets the tone for this show. I wonder if Sean Bean watches the the show and 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 feels like some sort of parental pride in his his kids <laughs> surviving and 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 thriving in the most recent seasons, <laughs> if you can call it that. <laughs> I have to think he does. It's just such a massive phenomenon that to to be completely to just completely shut it out would be weird at this point, right? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> either that or or, or no, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. because he's just an actor doing a job. I don't know. Exactly. Yeah, he very clearly anchored the show in this first season. People were tuning in week to week to see Ned Stark go through what he was going through. I think he was out and out the main character. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I remember everybody thought Ned Stark was the star, like the star, and so that makes the end of the season so shocking, right? Uh, but just in general, I wanted to talk a little bit about how this made me a this gave me an observation about our podcast and that it's when you read something at the basically the same time that you're watching an adaptation for it. It's a different experience than when you watch an adaptation like a few years removed from when you read a book. It's a very different, very different thing. Um, because I was noticing tons of differences, right? Like every scene, I'm going, this scene's different in X, Y, and Z way. And the original time I, I watched the show, I remember just going like, oh, this is really faithful. Um, mm-hmm. There was a couple of big differences that hopped out at me. But for the most part, I felt like it was very faithful adaptation. Um, but then this time, I'm like, well, they changed all these scenes to some de- degree, you know? And I was I was yeah. thinking of all the ways they were different. Well, I would say that it's at least the same scenes, 
maybe dialogues changed and kind of like somebody said somebody else says a line that's important for a certain character to say in the book but you know they take that importance away i'm thinking of like theon basically saying this is your pup because it's the runt of the litter rather than Jon snow saying this is mine to theon yeah so yeah. like something like that kind of changes the context of what's gonna what you think about certain characters or especially early on in the first episode well, and we talked about this in our Jesus's son coverage. Uh, we said that when the characters in that movie were just kind of reciting lines from the book, sometimes it felt a little weird. It was like too it was too specifically referencing the book. And I think they walked that line in the show because a lot of it is like the same subject matter, the same things are being said, but often they've sort of remixed it and maybe changed some of the lines, maybe maybe some like whether one character says it or another, but also just changing what is said exactly. But even if the premise is similar, um, there's a lot of that, those little remixes um, in general, but you're right. It does still feel faithful for the most part. Um, but I do think there's a few times where those little remixes um, don't land as well as others, um, mm-hmm. but it's just kind of nitpicky stuff. And then, like I said, I don't think it's something I would have noticed if I hadn't read the book in the week, you know, read that part of the book in the week leading up to watching that part of the show. Right. Oh, which we should also talk about how we're going to do this coverage because you might not have listened to the last episode and I don't know that we did a great job of outlining it (laughs) in the last episode. Um, But this is going to be all about the show only, but maybe doing some comparisons to the book. But uh, this is our this is our show focused episode. Uh, We're going to talk about uh, the the showrunners, do a little background for them, which I don't know a lot about them, but I know you've done some research. So I'm interested in, in learning about that. And then uh, the following two weeks after this, we're going to do these combination episodes where we cover show and book simultaneously um, and move through the, the, you know, the next big chunk of season and big chunk of, of book. So, uh, yeah, hopefully you join us for all of that and, and enjoy our Game of Thrones coverage. Definitely let us know what you think of it, because this is um, sort of an experiment for us. We're trying to figure out how to cover TV shows. We're always playing around with it. We did something kind of similar for Sharp Objects, another HBO show. Uh, so definitely any feedback about, you know, how you felt about this coverage and, and what you liked and what you didn't like uh, would definitely be useful. Definitely. Please let us know. Uh, as far as this specific episode is concerned, what I'm planning on is we're going to talk about David Benioff and D.B. Weiss, who are the showrunners. And then we're going to move very quickly, talk about the director of the first two episodes mm. and talk about kind of George R. R. Martin's involvement. And then I also, I don't know, famously, they had to reshoot a lot of the first of the pilot episode. And do you know about this? Uh, a little, uh, vaguely, but I didn't look anything up again. So I'd definitely be interested to have a refresher. Cool. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot to talk about there. And there's some things that you can pick up even on the aired episode that was like yeah. holdovers from that from that original pilot. And then we'll move into plot, t- uh, read a quick plot synopsis, and then we'll kind of react to how we felt about the show, compare it to the book, and that'll be the episode. Yeah, and if you want to make sure you catch those next two ones, make sure you subscribe on whatever platform you're on because that'll, that'll be uh, the best way to guarantee you get those episodes. So obviously the show is a massive hit. I'm sure everyone's heard of it, but I want to talk about the people who, who made it happen. So David Benioff and D.B. Weiss, are co-collaborating producers and and showrunners. They are also writers on the show. Um, their history leading up to Game of Thrones and the success of this is, is interesting because I found something that I did not know. Both are published authors prior to getting the show made. Did you know that? I think I'd actually heard that. I don't remember the titles, but yeah, I think I had heard that. 
So Benioff wrote, a, a no, wrote three novels. One's called The 25th Hour back in 2001. The next one was When the Nines Roll Over and Other Stories came out in 2004. And then City of Thieves came out in 2008. Was the 25th hour the same as the movie? Isn't there a movie of that name? Yes, yeah, so that's what I was going to get into. Very. So here, I'll read this, this little excerpt here. Benioff spent two years writing his first published novel, The 25th Hour, originally titled Fireman Down, and completed the book as his thesis for his master's degree at Irvine. He was asked to adapt the book into, screen, into a screenplay after Tobey Maguire read a preliminary trade copy and became interested in making a film of the book. The film adaptation, titled 25th Hour and starring Edward Norton, was directed by Spike Lee. Benioff then wrote a collection of short stories titled When the Nines Roll Over and Other Stories in 2004. Cool. So that's a potential project we could do then. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, Spike Lee directed. That's that's a big deal to have a published work adapted. I think I've seen it. I I just I don't really remember it, but I'm, I'm pretty sure I've seen an Edward Norton movie called 25th Hour. And that's about all I remember. <laughs> 25th Hour. It's I, I haven't seen it. But I'm going to check it out now. Well, maybe I'll wait for the podcast. Maybe we'll cover it. If people are interested, let us know. So Benioff then drafted a screenplay of the mythological epic Troy in 2004, for which Warner Brothers Pictures paid him $2.5 million. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Hollywood money is crazy, right? Yeah. Warner Brothers is just like, here's $2.5 for a a draft of a screenplay. Jeez. Um, He also wrote the script for the psychological thriller Stay in 2005, which was directed by Mark Forster. I think I've seen that too. And stars Ewan McGregor and Naomi Watts. Yeah, I think I have seen that. Yeah, I've seen that one as well. God, I didn't know I was... I had done... uh, Such a Benioff fan. Consumed so much of his stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Is this this just one of them or both of them? This is only only Benioff so far. Okay. David Benioff. So this you might have also seen. His screenplay for The Kite Runner... Uh, in 2007, was adapted from the novel of the same name, marked his second collaboration. Second collaboration with director Mark Forster. Wow, I haven't seen that or read the book. Yeah, then in then in uh, 2004, Benioff was hired to write the screenplay for the X Men spinoff X Men Origins Wolverine in 2009. Uh oh. <laughs> yeah, uh oh, def- definitely damn right. Uh, he based his script his script on Barry Windsor Smith's Weapon X story. Chris Claremont and Frank Miller's 1982 limited series of the character, as well as the 2001 limited series Origin. Skip Woods was later hired by Fox to revise and rewrite Benioff's script. Benioff had aimed for a darker and more brutal story, writing it with an R rating in mind, although he acknowledged the film's final tone would rest with a producer and director. Oh, wow. Okay, so maybe not his fault. The No, but I mean, not the best, not the best credit to have your name attached to. No, After but everything said, a more none. brutal and dark version of that movie, who knows? Maybe it could have been better. I mean, we saw Logan eventually, you know. Yeah, exactly. Well, that that's one of the reasons why I tend to think like, oh, yeah, that could lend itself because Logan was so good. So, yeah, mm-hmm. maybe. So, D.B. Weiss, this is also crazy because he's an author, published author. He wrote Lucky Wander Boy in 2003. Okay. Which I had never heard, heard of, of but... Weiss worked as a personal assistant on films such as the Viking Sagas for New Line Cinema. Uh, for a brief period, Weiss also worked as a personal assistant for mag- musician Glenn Fry. Weiss went to Dublin in 1995 to study Anglo-Irish literature and met David Benioff, the screenwriter of Troy. Three years later, around 1998, they met again in Santa Monica, California. His, his career is um, maybe a little shorter than Benioff's leading up to this, but they, they collaborate together and then... And then I think they're just kind of uh, as thick as thieves from here on. Weiss wow. and Benioff co-wrote a screenplay for a film titled The Headmaster, which I mentioned before, but it was never made. 
In 2003, they were hired to collaborate on a, on a new script of Orson Scott Card's book Ender's Game in consultation with the then-designated director Wolfgang Peterson. It was not used. Yeah, because so that movie was made, but it wasn't made anywhere around 2003, I don't think. No, I think it came out in like 2013 or so. Yeah, 2014, different, different screen screenplay probably. So Weiss's debut novel, Lucky Wander Boy, is themed around video games. In 2006, Weiss said he had a second novel f- finished that needs a second draft. That same year, Weiss completed a screenplay for a film adaptation of the video game series Halo, based on a script written by Alex Garland. Favorite of the podcast, Alex Garland. Holy cow. How about that? It's funny how all these uh, intersect in, in fa- ways that I totally didn't know. That's that's cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, and that's the uh, director of Annihilation. Right. Uh, another favorite project of ours. Uh, if, you, if you're interested in that, definitely check it out. Director Neil Blomkamp declared the project dead in late 2007. So that was a lot of talent on that on that Halo film. Oh, wow. Pretty crazy. Yeah, that what could have been, perhaps. <laughs> and then all of this leads us to January of 2006. David Benioff had a phone. I'm sure you've actually heard this story. I've read it like multiple times. It's super famous, but maybe uh, David Benioff had a phone conversation with George R. R. Martin's literary agent about the books he represented and became interested in A Song of Ice and Fire, mm. as he had been a fan of fantasy fiction when he was young but had not read the books before. The literary agent then sent Benioff the series' first four books. Benioff read a few hundred pages of the first novel of Game of Thrones and shared his enthusiasm with D.B. Weiss and suggested they adapt Mar- Martin's novels into a television series. Weiss finished the first novel in, quote, maybe 36 hours. they pitched the series to hbo after a five-hour meeting with martin himself a veteran screenwriter in a restaurant on santa monica boulevard according to benioff they won martin over with the answer with the their answer to his question who is Jon snow's mother oh yeah i've heard that i've heard uh that's funny because we so we we did a deep dive into uh martin's history with you know working in Hollywood and in his publication history. And it's interesting to think about how that intersects here in 2006, uh, 10 years after the publication of the first novel, uh, you know, that we, we've talked about, he famously said he sat down to write a series that could never be adapted into onto the screen. <laughs> so I wonder what he was thinking when he heard this. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I have a quote here that, that I think kind of lends itself to that. Okay. This is George R. R. Martin. He said, I had worked in Hollywood myself for about 10 years, from the late 80s to the 90s. I'd been on, on the staff of The Twilight Zone and Beauty and the Beast. All of my first drafts tended to be too big or too, bi- too expensive. I always hated the process of having to cut. I said, I'm sick of this. I'm going to write something that's as big as I want it to be, and it's going to have a cast of characters that go into the thousands. And I'm going to have huge, huge castles and battles and dragons. <laughs> it's a pretty funny, like, stream of consciousness little comment from him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that supports what we I had read elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and little did he know he was going to have an, a budget that dwarfs a lot of feature films <laughs> by the end of this thing. So even after Weiss and Benioff said, hey, we want to adapt this, Martin said, like, look, they're unfilmable. And they, they brought up the Lord of the Rings. Um, but ultimately, Benioff said it would it would be impossible to turn the novels into a feature film as the, as the scale of the novels is is too big for a feature film. Yeah. Dozens of characters would have to be discarded. Well, people have pointed out that all of the Lord of the Rings, as far as word count, is equal to like one of the Song of Ice and Fire books. Yeah. So Benioff added a fantasy movie of this scope financed by a major studio would almost certainly need a PG-13 rating. That means no sex, no blood, no profanity. Fuck that. Martin himself was pleased with the suggestion that they had they adapted as an HBO series, saying that he never imagined it anywhere else. 
I knew it couldn't be done as a network television series. It's too adult. The level of sex and violence would never have gone through. Mm. So it sounds like they won him over just by the fact that they were like, look, this needs to be like everything that's in the books, which when we get to it here in, in I think episode two, they kind of took a little too far in some ways. Uh, it kind of got away from, and who knows if it was like, I, I don't know how much studio input there would have been from HBO and the like, but who knows what whose actual decision it was to have such uh such violent rape scenes uh but it seems like it seems to yeah. be like recurring uh for the show uh i do want to talk about those scenes but i think uh let's 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 take them when we get to the actual episodes themselves um that was something that definitely stood out to me the most in this re- rewatch uh kind of soured the first two episodes in my mind a little bit in a way that that i it wasn't before i agree i think we talk about this when we get to the episode there um Back to the development here. The series began mm-hmm. development in 2007, January. HBO acquired the TV rights to the novels with uh, Benioff and Weiss as its executive producers and Martin as a co-producer, co-executive producer. Uh, the intention was for each novel to yield a season's worth of episodes. Initially, Martin would write one episode per season while Benioff and Weiss would write the rest of the episodes. The first and second drafts of the pilot, scripted by Benioff and Weiss, were submitted in August of 2007 and June of 2008, respectively. Although HBO liked both drafts, a pilot was not ordered until November of 2008. The pilot episode, Winter is Coming, was first shot in 2009. After a poor reception and a private viewing, HBO demanded an extensive reshoot, about 90% of the episode with cast and directorial changes. Really? Wow. I didn't know it was that much. The fact that it was even made is a miracle at this point. Uh, the pilot reportedly cost HBO 5 to $10 million to produce, while the first season's budget was estimated at 50 to $60 million. So just the first, the pilot episode being that, which you have to think about the fact that they're building sets and, and, you know, finding locations and there's a lot of money up front, but the fact that they had to, it cost five to 10 million is a lot for one episode, especially for a pilot. So did you, could you find anything about why they had to do so much reshooting? Like what was wrong with it? Because I know that there was different actors to some of the, some of the characters, things like that. Yeah, I actually did, and um, we're we're going to get into that here in a second because okay, cool. <laughs> the unaired version actually, um, not until recently did anybody actually know what the re- what specifics there were. But George R. R. Martin had a copy of one of the early scripts that I guess he donated somewhere, and it's been basically put on the internet as of I think like February of this year or last year. And okay. uh, wow. do you want to do you want to jump into that now and come back around to some of the other? Yeah, let's do it. We're talking about it, so. So a couple of major differences that that stuck out to me when I was reading uh, some of the script here were uh, mm-hmm. Daenerys and Caldrogo have a sex scene much more similar to the sex scene in the book. Wow. Okay. So they changed that. They changed it to make it more raunchy or whatever they wanted to do, make it more shocking. Ugh. Or uh, th- to know that this was only you know eight years ago, and to see it on film and and know like that was a decision that was made to make it potentially more popular is just like. It's gross and that's so weird. So it was like a test audience thing too. Like they they didn't react well to it. I mean, I don't know if it was. I don't know. I who's to say what the test audience actually felt? But... Or executives or some somebody watched it and wanted it. Yeah, it sounds like um, because one of the things I my observations was how just they clearly added sex. Like they wanted more sex, more nudity to to make it spicier and to make it uh 
you know, it's almost like they didn't trust it to land with audiences on its merit. And so they had to include a bunch of nudity so that you'd bring in an audience just for that reason alone. Well, I mean, I can tell you that that definitely was probably a decision that was made because every show on HBO at that point used the fact that there was nudity to definitely pull in like a certain audience members and and maybe keep other ones around. Yeah. It's unfortunate. I mean, it's it's especially unfortunate knowing where the show would go. And I feel like it took them a while to sort of evolve beyond that. Um, and I, I would argue that they have. That's one of the things I do want to give them credit for is that I think for the most part, they've moved beyond that over-sexualization just for the sake of, you know, titillating viewers. Um, mm-hmm. They still have some. I mean, it's an HBO show, but it's it it feels different than the first few seasons for sure. Yeah, I mean, after seeing these two episodes, there was the Dothraki wedding and just the sexualization of tons of stuff. The Tyrion introduction, uh, where they said, but Tyrion would Tyrion would go on to have mo- a lot more of these throughout the seasons, a lot more of these like gratuitous sex scenes. I feel like where it was just like sex for the sake of sex. Yeah, and but his int- literally the introduction to his character is a wholly invented scene: him in a, in a brothel, having sex, uh, lots of nudity. And then um, one of the things I hated most about that scene is the next scene that follows it. Did you notice? The next scene that follows it cuts immediately to Robert Baratheon thinking about Lyanna Stark and, and saying, you shouldn't have buried here, Ned. And it's like a sad scene of him reminiscing about his lost love. Well, we're and supposed to think of the... I think it was this, a way of making the Lannisters even more villainized, right? Like, we're like, even even Tyrion at this point, we're like, fuck Tyrion, because he seems like that type of guy until we learn more about him. I just think there was like a whiplash tonally from mm-hmm. from that scene to the next that felt weird to me. And it yeah. felt like something that happened in the edit where they didn't know what was going to be <laughs> there and they just decided to put it that way. And, and I think it was kind of unfortunate. But we'll get into that as as we get into the episode itself. Let's finish up uh, background stuff here. Yeah, well, these, I want to talk about some more of these differences real quick okay. um, that I found. The White Walkers may have potentially talked in a language that sounded like ice crackling on a winter lake in this first episode. Hmm. Okay. So I guess during maybe the first scene with the brothers where they run into the wildling bodies and everything, maybe one of those White Walkers would have talked in like some sort of yeah. crackling noise, which... I don't know how to feel about I I think that at some point they start screaming, right? I remember a White Walker screaming in another season. So they do make noise. But yeah, I, don't I think know it was really smarter wanted. to probably pull back and leave them more mysterious so that they yeah. could kind of like take time to figure out how they wanted to handle it. Because I was thinking about that and it's like clearly they hadn't figured out everything they wanted to do with the White Walkers in that first episode. The first time I saw the show, I thought that the White Walker, like the, the walker that we saw was like black because he was so covered in shadow because they so clearly didn't know like really how they wanted the design to go. Yeah. But it's so, more just that he's in shadow. I right. Think in, in retrospect. Yeah. He is. Yeah. Uh, another massive change that you were kind of just talking about is when Robert's leaving the feather in Lyanna's hand in the crypt with with Ned there. Mm-hmm. Apparently in this unaired version, Cersei sees Robert leave this feather and she goes and grabs the feather and tells one of her handmaidens to burn it, which would have burned a bridge that they eventually went back to later. I think Sansa picks up the feather yeah. um, in the crypt. and like That like, seems like a small thing, but okay. For Cersei to have seen that. Yeah, it was like, how, why was she in the crypts is definitely a, a valid question. Like, how did she and see And it's that? kind of, and it almost, if if you were looking for it, it would almost make the uh, the reveal a little bit more obvious too, maybe. No, I guess not. I just the just the fact that Cersei like went to Lyanna's statue and like took the feather because she knew that like they were betrothed at one point. 
maybe oh like, we should uh, also say before we go any further um in case it's not clear we are we are approaching this we said it in the last episode but we'll say it again we're approaching this from the perspectives of people who have seen all the way up to the most recent season and have read all the books um so we are going to be referencing things that would technically be a spoiler so if you've only seen the first two episodes of game of thrones and that's your only exposure to it uh don't listen because we're going to spoil things <laughs> right come back come back after uh, after you've yeah, caught up come come back after you've watched more <laughs> Another uh, change from this original original pilot is uh, Daenerys and and Catelyn were played by different actors. Okay, so they were recast. I knew Danny was. I didn't know. I've heard. I, had, I think I've heard Catelyn, but I forgot. I had forgotten that. Mm-hmm. And another, I guess, one of the major notes was that it wasn't clear enough in the original pirate pilot that pirate. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't clear enough in the original pilot that Cersei and Jaime were siblings. Oh, so I guess that was like because that's a big deal for them. It's for you to realize that they're siblings and for Bran to see them. So that's why we get some clear uh, kind of expository telling out of I think it's like Sansa or Arya or somebody saying, mm-hmm. you know, that's they're the twin. They're that's yeah, the, she's yeah. and her twin brother Jamie Lannister, and yeah, I, f- I did I did want to mention that. Um, I know that they were doing a lot of legwork to introduce these characters to people, but it felt like every time a character we would cut back to another character, they'd be like. Oh, you, you're Jon Snow the bastard, aren't you? And then they'd cut to so-and-so and Jamie would be like, you're my sister, Cersei. And they're like very specifically like <laughs> laying out like, this is who you are and this is what your your motivation is. It's awkward, man. Audience. It's hard to introduce characters and and especially when you're introducing 40 characters like they're doing here. Like it's so hard. It, it's just kind of funny so- like with, with our knowledge going back and seeing like how obvious it is. But they did a pretty good job. I think some of it's forgivable, you know, and, and, and like audiences kind of get it. It's like, yeah, maybe they wouldn't really say that, but it's for our benefit. And as mm-hmm. long as it's not just like obnoxious, some people are most people are willing to put up with it. I, I don't want to speak for everybody. Some people really hate that, hate that stuff. But and the thing that bothers me the most is uh, you can see what was shot in the original pilot and what was reshot with Tyrion because the first version of his hair was just awful in that like the so his introductory scene the sex scene yeah you see his hair is like they tried to do they tried to be like very very close to what the book is and then and then ended up for the reshoots ended up kind of doing a version of that but they really went for it in the in the first they tried to make him look like jamie and like give him like a sort of like i don't know how to describe his hair but it was completely different than his eventual Tyrion look you're right. I, yeah, I couldn't put my finger on what was different, but you're right. His hair is different in that scene. That's so funny. It's such a <laughs> and it's a weird look for him too. Like it just doesn't doesn't fit. So I'm glad that they redid that. I hope that it was worth the five million dollars to just reshoot Tyrion scene so that his hair would look better. Did you read anything about the Danny uh, change and the Catelyn change and, and what the reason for those were? I read about the Catelyn change. I didn't see much about the Danny. I'm sure it's out there, but I didn't see any. Um, the cat apparently Catelyn. They, I mean, they weren't happy with the actor for one, and then the other was they weren't happy with kind of her motivations. I think she was a bit harsher, even though she is somewhat harsh in in this version of her. I think that they weren't they they didn't find the line between her being like very motherly to everyone else and being very harsh to like John and Ned sometimes. Mm. Uh, and I don't, I just think that they weren't happy with kind of the version of Catelyn that they had originally. Okay. So that's most of the major stuff that I saw from the unaired version of episode one, the original pilot. Mm-hmm. Uh, back to Weiss and Benioff. They together directed two episodes of Game of Thrones so far, and they used a coin flip to decide who would get the credit on each episode. Benioff was given the credit for season three, episode three, Walk of Punishment, while Weiss was credited with season four, episode one, Two Swords. Benioff and Weiss will co-direct the series finale. 
It was also announced on February 6, 2018, that Disney was hiring Weiss and Benioff to write and produce a new series of Star Wars films after the final season of Game of Thrones is completed this year. Wow. You know, I think I had heard that. That's actually a good reminder because I had heard that and forgotten it. <laughs> yeah. Star Wars seems to be kind of in a weird in-between area right now, so I'm not really sure like what's actually going to come out ultimately. But I would, yeah. I hope that this does come out because I would love to see them take their Game of Thrones background and give it like an an old republic sort of series or or couple movies uh i think that they would they i think they knocked that out of the park sounds cool to me so the last person involved with the development of these two episodes that i did want to talk about is timothy van patten he was the director who was brought in after the original one for the original pirate pilot was pirate (laughs) 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 he was the one who was brought in after the original director was fired. He is kind of this HBO go-to solid option, and they they brought him in to to start off this show. He's directed episodes of The Sopranos, The Wire, Deadwood, The Pacific, Rome, Sex and the City, and Boardwalk Empire. Okay, yeah, I can see that. In addition to other in addition to other things, I just think it's interesting that he's like this HBO staple. It seems like he is a go-to figure for HBO, especially at this sure. point in 2011 when they're trying to get a new show off the ground yeah i think he did an admirable job for sure so that's all i have about development and the creators to this point there's some more stuff about george rr that we will probably talk about in next uh, following episodes and we'll definitely talk about it when we get to the episode that he wrote for the first season but i think this is a good time to jump into plot if you're ready yeah okay so the first episode is winter is coming in the seven kingdoms of westeros a soldier of the ancient night's watch order survives an attack by supernatural creatures known as white walkers thought until now to be mythical he rushes to the castle winterfell which is ruled by eddard this is kind of a weird i'm gonna read this but i just want to say this is kind of a weird like outsider's perspective on something that we know really well yeah i was like i don't know if that's true actually (laughs) yeah so he rushes to castle winterfell which i would just call winterfell which is ruled by Eddard, Eddard, Ned Stark, Warden of the North, who decapitates the soldier for desertion. In King's Landing, the capital, John Aaron, the King's Hand, dies under mysterious circumstances. King Robert Baratheon, Ned's longtime friend, travels to Winterfell to, to offer the position to him and proposes marriage between his firstborn son, Joffrey, and Ned's older daughter, Sansa. Ned's wife, Catelyn, receives a letter from her sister, Liza, John Aaron's what widow, saying that she has escaped King's Landing and that John was murdered by the Lannisters, Queen Cersei's family. Catelyn burns the letter and tells Ned about it, believing that the Lannisters are plotting against Robert. Ned's ten-year-old son Brandon climbs a tower where he witnesses Cersei get, having sex with her twin brother Jamie, who then pushes him out, out the window from a presumably fatal height. That's such a stupid line. <laughs> Meanwhile, across the narrow scene in Essos, the exiled prince Viserys Targaryen makes a deal with the Dothraki warlord Khal Drogo, who marries Viserys' sister Daenerys, in exchange for providing Viserys an arm- army to conquer Westeros and reclaim the Iron Throne. And they didn't mention the scene where they find a direwolf with a with an antler in its neck, or I guess somewhere in its body, and they divvy out young direwolf pups to each of the Stark children, and Jon Snow gets one as well. Yeah. Well, that's all right. I think that gives us enough to get into it here. We we talk about, like, everything that happens in the start of this book more in the last episode, so I think we can kind of jump around a little bit here. Yeah, so let's start with that first scene. Let's talk about the Night's Watch when they're out on patrol and they see the walkers. 
Um, immediately, I just because we talked about it last episode, they they changed these characters some. Um, I felt like Royce was more of a shit, and he dies immediately and does nothing redeeming. And um, I kind of missed the version of Royce we got in the book where he seems like he's going to be a shit, but then he does something kind of surprising before he dies. It's more complex, right? It, I, I think it's cool because there's more layers to it. And that's the thing, you know, like often I feel like you get a little bit more complexity. Um, it, it's OK. It's not a big deal. Um, but yeah, I just missed it a little bit. And then uh, Will being the one who survives only to get his head cut off. I was fine with that change. I think he's the more interesting character. Um, I did wonder, and I think this is a mystery on purpose, but doesn't mean anything. Why? How did Will survive? Because they quite I was gonna clearly say the same show thing. him like the White Walkers looming over him and he's just standing there like helpless. Exactly. So it's like it was a decision on the Walkers part to let him go. Right. Which is so the implication that. Yeah. The implication from that, though, is that we can infer that the White Walkers want people to at least have heard rumors or have heard stories of them coming back. So they want to yeah. put fear in the hearts of the North already is what it seems like we can infer in the show. Yeah, I don't get that impression from Will when he's talking to Ned later. Um, but maybe, yeah, maybe he said like, hey, I'll go down and tell them tell them that you're coming if you let me go or something. Oh, no, I don't mean like that. I just mean that like like the walker made the decision, didn't even say anything to him, just looked at him and made the decision to be like, I'm going to let him live so that he, he'll tell yeah. stories of us coming down. Yeah, maybe. Um, and, and with what we're seeing in these later seasons, I mean, the White Walkers are still very mysterious. And I think we're going to get more answers in this final season, um, at least for the show and like what their ultimate goals are. Um, so I'll be I'll be curious to see. And if does that line up with the idea of them le- letting Will go? I think this is something that we talked about in our it coverage way back when we first started this podcast. They, there's a dead kid right away. And showing one of the first major things that you show having like the young wildling dead. Oh, the wildling. Yeah. Yeah. So showing a young yeah. wildling girl dead and then show, showing her resurrected. That's yeah. pretty that's pretty hardcore. Like that's that'll hook some audience members. There's a lot of tone setting in here. It's very dark. It's it's showing that this is fantasy. Yet we have monsters and we have, you know, darkness and, and it's a beautiful opening series of scenes um actually i i was quite impressed with the way the the, the woods looked and and um how much it held up even though it's um you know eight years old now you can tell that they were like this is the first scene we have to nail this first scene mm. so there is another scene that really stood out to me right after this and that's uh, uh ned stark cleaning ice sitting in front of the weirwood and i'm so happy that this scene exists the way that it does because mm-hmm. This is clearly like we're going to show this. If we're going to do anything right, we're going to get this scene and we're going to show it to you and it's going to be right out of the book and you're going to just be impressed with how detailed it is because you get the little face on the weirwood that nobody even mentions. So it's Mm -hmm. kind of like an Easter egg if you know you're looking for it. It's great. And it also looks like some of the really famous fan art I've seen and maybe even concept art. It might even be official um, Mm -hmm. of this scene. Um, it looks it looks like they storyboarded that thing to look just like the art. It looks great. The production design is amazing. And like I said, to, to spend five to ten million on one episode and and all the setting up that they're doing for the season, all the sets and everything. They did such a great job The the mm-hmm. one of the things about the werewood that's so striking is that red on white, like the white of this. I guess in this point, it's green because there's no snow there. But the red leaves in the werewood just always are so iconic looking. Yeah. Totally agree. Very striking scene. Um, I'm going to just move on quickly here because there's another thing I want to talk about right at the start. Have you heard of the uh, 
Robert Baratheon touch of death observation yes. or theory yeah. or whatever. <laughs> Every, all the Starks that he touch touches when he first arrives end up dead, basically. Yeah, they all die. Um, do you think that that was planned? Was that an intentional thing or, or, or just an accident? You know, I don't know. Um, I'd like to think that they were... It sounds like this this whole first episode was a hot mess, but it, I'd like to think that they had the, the wherewithal to be like in pre-production that they wanted to... They saw that far ahead. I think that would be cool. But from what I understand, they've been kind of like, as it's gone on, how could they have really known? You know, as it's gone on, they've changed yeah. from... I think it's a happy accident, honestly. I think it's mm-hmm. cool that it's true. Um, but I feel like they couldn't have been playing that sort of game this early. Uh, it just seems unlikely to me. It's more likely that it happened and then the internet noticed that it was true and therefore we talk about it. Mm-hmm. If, you know, Robert had walked up and ruffled Arya's hair, we just wouldn't be talking about this as a thing. So um, it's kind of like a it's because it happened to be true. Now it a- seems like it was always planned. Yeah, I did want to shoot back to the first scene really quickly about the symbol that's made in the snow with oh, the yeah. body parts of the wildlings. It's crazy that up to this point, we still don't really know the significance of that. Like we know kind of maybe some stuff with like the children of the forest and maybe White Walker stuff like. Yeah. But it's like so it's so far ahead of its time, really. And the fact that it just remained mysterious is kind of nice. Yeah. I I wonder how many more how many answers we're going to get for that sort of thing. To me, it always just implied that there's an intelligence to these things. It's not just a monster. Uh, it's not just sort of a an undead being that's out for blood and and that nothing else like it if you're if you're creating symbols you're you're trying to express something in some fashion you mm-hmm. would think uh so maybe so maybe that means they have larger motives which there's tons of theories out there about the motives of the others and and what that all could mean um which are all very interesting but we definitely don't have time to get into <laughs> <laughs> hopefully over this coverage we'll be able to get into at least some of them uh oh, there's a you, you and i after our first episode talked a little bit there's a youtube channel alt shift x that i've just like yes. gone on like binge journeys where i've just watched like all of their videos and it's always really like you know sometimes very tinfoily but it's always like well informed enough to kind of like oh yeah be interesting to, to listen to great great uh youtube series definitely highly recommend um, a lot of that stuff is often like theories that may only be true in the books. Um, clearly, they've decided not to go that route in the show at this point. Um, but yeah, I mean, some of it's still some of those theories are still out there and could still be confirmed in the final season. So who knows? Uh, Clegane Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get hype. Uh, yeah. One of the things I wanted to point out is something that has been I've be- I've become more aware of, and that's uh, male gaze in television and movies and this is something mm-hmm. that's talked about a lot and it's something that i i you know i didn't notice um you know as a heterosexual male myself it's you know i had the uh, privilege of not having noticed it right because that's what most tv is like um but being aware of it and then also sort of studying these films that we've been talking about in this podcast made me notice it in these first two episodes mm-hmm. and specifically the the most egregious is the danny scenes because the text of the story is telling us this is a horrible situation. She's being sold into essentially slavery. She's going to be raped. How, you know, this is super awful and we should feel bad about it. And look at the way her brother's treating her and sexualizing her. Isn't that awful? But at the same time, the camera is lingering on mm-hmm. her like exposed body in a way that is saying like, but yeah, it's kind of hot, isn't it? 
you know? Yeah. And, and and it's something that I didn't notice before, but you can, like, if you watch those scenes, the camera isn't telling us this is bad. The camera's telling us that this is hot. Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's, we just have to, like, look past that and understand that it's bad. So, people who are sensitive to this sort of thing, I can totally see why you could watch this show and go, oh, it's just, you know... It's just you know oversexualized and 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 brutal and and doesn't treat his women characters well and I think all of that is 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 a valid criticism especially these early seasons uh, where that is the sort of thing it's like they they're talking out both sides of their mouth on one side they're saying you know how bad is this stuff but then on the other side they're 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 showing it to titillate and to to be sexy which is just and super weird c- completely agree male gaze is is I mean we studied male gaze in in school and. It's just one of those things that has been around forever. And like you said, it just becomes like the subliminal thing to most audiences. But if you do pick up on it, it's so egregious and shows like this. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, it's like, is it an HBO thing? Because it's like, clearly HBO probably said sex it up to an extent. Yeah. But it's also oh, yeah. like male gaze where, where this show was being made for, I think there's like, they knew their demographic and their audience that they were going to shoot for. And they were like, you know what that audience probably will like is over-sexualization to, to the max. Yeah, definitely. And, and I mean, if you, there's a clear, I just remember a clear example of this where Danny's watching her brother walk out and the, the camera slowly pans down to her ass and it just like fills <laughs> up the whole screen. And I'm like, what was that? It's just there to be sexy. It's just yeah. there to titillate and to make guys go, oh, yeah, this is a great show. Um, and it's sad because to me that is such a, it's such an underselling of the story. Like the story yeah. is good and it doesn't need that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm frustrated with the idea that they may have even reshot things to lean in that direction. Um, and I get it that there is a marketing component to that. There is, like you said, executives saying sex sells. We need to sex this thing up. Um, I just think it's sad and it's in- indicative of a larger culture that, that you know, is still continuing to grow and change and hopefully get better. And all we can do is, you know, try and be better and, and, and to hold things to a, to a better standard. So, yeah, I just wanted to point it out. It's, it is something I noticed this time that I, I think in the eight years since I saw it originally have grown as a consumer of media. And that's something that I am more aware of now. Yeah. We got to call bullshit when we see this stuff. Yeah. So how different was that? Was that wolf scene? To you, because it felt very different to me. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely different. Um, little changes here and there, characters saying different things. Um, but yeah, I'm curious to know. So when you say very different, what do you what do you mean? So there's something in the book about it feels like this. I talked about like this hand of fate that's like guiding the story along, and I think that it felt like in the book this was always meant to happen. These this is this is this like universe coming together and aligning in a certain way, and there's importance to everything that's happening. And to to me, in in the scene that we get, it doesn't feel as as weighty or as important to me. Uh, hmm. And and I think a lot of that has to do with kind of the way that they were making Theon a big part of the scene because he like tried to jump in and kill the pup right away, and then yeah, he also had a line later, and and even like the uh, the Master of Arms that's there, like he makes a comment, and it just felt very stark central in the in the book, and then in the show it didn't feel it felt like it was just more of a this is an event that has to happen. Yeah, I can see that. I, I I think also the weightiness of it, though, is backed up throughout the these two episodes in um, the way they deal with the wolves. And there's sort of like there's they highlight a supernatural connection between them all in a way that you don't really get in the book. Um, we see them. I mean, we hear about howling and stuff, but um, we just see. I don't know. To me, it seems more like 
immediately backing up John's prediction that these were meant for them, like we immediately see that being the case and uh, in, in how quickly they bond and how and how strongly and how they all react to different things. Um, yeah. Does that make sense? I mean, I, 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 it's like it's like the, the I agree with you that maybe that it was more in the book of, of a of a like a prediction for these these being an important part of the story um, than it was in the show. But it's just over time. I think they, they do be, they do a good job of sort of catching up to that. Yeah, I think they pay it off. They, I mean, just showing the kids how quickly they're grow, the wolves are growing with the kids, and the stuff with Bran and Lady and Nymeria. I see what you're saying. Yeah, and the those dogs grow, grow fast. Those wolves grow fast. I should say. Uh, every time they show them, they've tripled in size. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. Th- I think it happens like three times in the first episode. It's oh funny. for sure. Well, it's got to be believable when the when the dog jumps on that guy to save Catelyn and Bran. In yeah. the second episode. Yeah. So I yeah, so the other thing to talk about here I think is also the Drogo and Danny uh rape that is very different than we talked about in the book. In the in the book there is consent. Um we've talked about how it's a tricky situation and whether or not consent is even possible is debatable. Uh but ultimately their relationship is started in an area of at least like sort of a gray area of consent. Whereas this is not <laughs> this is a full-on rape and then it's doubled down in the next episode um and we get the implication that it's it's been going on so the idea is that their whole relationship is founded on initially just sexual assault and rape and then danny kind of turns it around and tries to to win him over which is just a way grosser yeah then that part's also very male gaze right like that felt like a like somebody saying like and then she's gonna like like it and turn it into yeah you know what i mean like i that felt not great also yeah very problematic i I can totally see why a lot of people hated this um and yeah i mean i I can see it now it really stands out in a way that it didn't to me before so that i i get it um the only thing i can say is that i do think the show gets a little bit better at it over time um it does take it a while though Uh, it takes a few seasons but I, i think it does start to get a little better um Although I, there are a few things that stand out as not being too great in, in later seasons as well. But they, there's like this fascination with rape in the show where they go to rape for some reason multiple times when the books don't. And I know that they like potentially it's for shocking reasons, but yeah, rape is rape. And like, I don't know yeah. that it ha- needed to go there. So it's funny because this is a problem in fantasy that has been being discussed at, you know, for a while now. And it's one of those situations where I think the genre in uh, the book genre of fantasy has sort of outpaced the TV and movie genre of fantasy. In some ways, it's more sophomoric, whereas I feel like we've moved past this a little bit um, in our in our fiction. Um, But, yeah, it's the same thing. And and you'll see this a lot with a lot of beginning writers. It's a it's a kind of a almost a cliche to talk about, uh, especially, you know, white male heterosexual men writing fantasy will often have gratuitous rape scenes in their books. Mm-hmm. And there is a lot of, uh, it's, 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 it's fascinating to try and figure out why it's happening. I, and in a lot of ways it's a symptom of culture, um, in my opinion. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, I think there is sort of a weird association between fantasy and sort of this like male, wish fulfillment sexualization stuff and and just trying to put stuff in there to have it be to be edgy and and extreme but also sexy 
in a gross way. And, and for whatever reason, like it was a big thing in like the seventies with fantasy. And, and it's interesting to see it being carried through in our, in our films and in our TV shows uh, to some extent. And, and yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm having a ramble here, but do you, do you see like some of the points I'm trying to make? I think that you can have rape in a story, but to have a character that's going to be ultimately like a likable character that you're like going to be like oh rooting for that character makes it like kind of murky and again like i i am the kind of person where i think that if you're writing a story and your story calls for it and you feel like that's the story you want to tell you should but i think that you should be aware of what you're doing you you're walking into a like you're walking into some deep deep water and you kind of if you're doing it for the right reasons, I think that it can be there. I just, I just think it's unfortunate that in this case, it feels like they were not in the show. It feels like well, was... and you want to do it in a way that is respectful of the people who have been victims, right? I mean, I think is if if you're if you're writing something in a way that is not respectful for those people, then you're doing it wrong. Um, because who are you writing it for? Then you're writing it for the perpetrators. You know what right. I mean? Like. And, and these early scenes are not written in a way that is respectful, in my opinion, um, because it's it's trying to sexualize it in a kind of a gross way. But I think we should move on. There is a lot of other stuff to talk about here, but I just wanted to make sure we hit on that. Yeah. So, I mean, the rest of the stuff that happens here is is Robert Baratheon shows up in Winterfell and he goes to the to the crypts like we talked about with Ned and, yeah. you know, John and, and, and Tyrion share a scene uh, when their feast is happening. I wonder if uh, Sean Bean was told R plus L equals J, so that he could play these scenes with that. Sort I was of one, I was thinking mind. about this too. I was wondering if John, if if um, Kit Harrington knew. No, see, I wouldn't. I um, oh, actually, you know what? I did read. Uh, I think John was one of the few actors who actually read the books early on. I think he was famous for that. Like a lot of them deliberately wouldn't read. Like Peter Dinklage has said that he didn't read the books, um, you know, purposefully. And I can understand that perspective too, from a performance standpoint, like not wanting to, to copy exactly what's going on there or, or change what you feel in the performance. Yeah. Or know what's coming or yeah, mm-hmm. change your character to match more closely, like the book version of the character rather than like the TV version of the character, which sometimes are pretty different. I think Sean Bean, it would have been interesting to tell him just because I like to see, or I, I imagine that I see some of that going on behind his eyes in these scenes, which I well, think is kind of cool to think about. And there's a moment uh, in episode two, where we'll, I think we're going to be moving on to episode two in a second, but yeah, yeah. There's a moment where Catelyn is basically saying, like, get out of here, fuck you. You don't need to say goodbye to Bran. And then in the book, he leaves and meets up and talks to Rob or something. But Ned walks in on that situation in this, yeah. in the in the show. And it's interesting to think about what he was thinking in that moment. Because, you know, yeah. he stands there and doesn't say anything. And John leaves the room and he looks at his wife. And it's just like, to, and something that really got me this time, and it always has, but just watching it again makes me think like, why wouldn't Ned just trust Catelyn enough to tell her? Because it's like, how much easier would that make hit Ned's life to just tell her R plus L equals J? Well, you could argue that as soon as he tells her, he's making her a complicit traitor against the crown. And yeah, but like, if you're gonna trust anyone with that, it's gonna be. Her. I know what you're. I know what you're saying, but I think from Ned's perspective, he doesn't want anyone else to know because anybody he tells, he's putting at risk. And that's also like, it's kind of like good secret keeping, um, because if you have a secret and you start sharing it with people that you think are totally trustworthy and they're not gonna they're not gonna spread you know share it, 
Like, yeah. you're just introducing more points of failure for that sort of, like, Yeah, secrecy. I mean, I guess, ultimately, Ned is the honorable, most honorable person. And, and when it came down to it, he promised his sister on her deathbed that he would he would keep John safe. And, and who knows what happens? It's his wife, but who knows what really happens at the end of time, at the end of your life? Like, who knows what events are going to go down? They could be yeah. separated. They could, you know, divorce, per se. And, like, she well, could tell secrets like that. And, and then he would have gone back on the promise that he made to his dying sister. Well, I mean, you, you, I mean, you bring up a good point and you're right. You know, you know, we know that Catelyn is a good person and that she would probably have kept the secret and that maybe she would have felt differently about John and maybe things would have been better for John had she known. But I think the counter argument to that is that they were they were basically strangers when they got married. And when he brought that child back, they weren't yet what they are now. And so he probably didn't know if he could trust her because she's a Tully. Mm -hmm. um, she has other allegiances. She has other loyalties. Who knows what she would have done. And then also, if she had treated his bastard son, and that's the story to everybody else, but she treated him really well. Yeah, that's true. That doesn't sell the fiction that they're trying to sell as much as, yeah, she's always hated him like she probably would in this situation were it true. That's a good point. Well, let's move into episode two because I want to make sure we get into that. Oh, so why is Tyrion asleep with the in the kennel with the dogs at the start of this episode? Because he's so drunk. He's just so drunk. So he drunk. just passed out with the dogs. Apparently, I love it. I would do that too, though. I can't. I can't talk <laughs> shit. I would totally do that. <laughs> I like that they gave him three slaps to Joffrey in the show versus the two we get in the book. It's so good when he's like, "I will tell my mother" or something, and bang! It's so good. Yeah. This version of Joffrey is so much slap more slappable too. <laughs> oh, he's just this. Yeah. He this kid kills it as as Joffrey. Yeah, he does a good job. And I, it's definitely unfortunate, you know, when I read that he get, he would get death threats and stuff from people just for playing the character. I think he takes it in stride. I don't think he I don't think he like takes it any too, too serious Cause from all from what I was reading is he's like he was like the nicest person on set also. Yeah. Yeah. It's just unfortunate. People don't do that. The actor is not the character. Do not do that. Um, and in fact, the reason you hate Joffrey so much is a, is a testament to how well the actor did at portraying that character. Absolutely. How good a job. Yeah. Here, I'm going to read the synopsis real quick just to give us a jumping off point. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So this episode's called The King's Road. Having accepted his new role as King's Hand, Ned leaves Winterfell with his daughters Sansa and Arya, while Catelyn stays behind to tend to Bran. The unconscious Bran is attacked by an assassin, but his dire wolf saves him. Catelyn decides to go to King's Landing to tell Ned about the attempt and suspected Lannister involvement. Jon Snow, Ned's illegitimate son, heads north to join the Brotherhood of the Night's Watch, protectors of the wall that keep the White Walkers and the Wildlings from entering civilized Westeros. Tyrion Lannister, Cersei's brother, decides to forgo the trip south with his family and instead accompanies Snow, Snow's entourage to the wall. When Joffrey threatens Arya and her friend, Arya's direwolf defends her, provoking a conflict between the Starks and the Lannisters. To resolve the conflict, Cersei demands Robert order Ned to execute Arya's direwolf. But as Arya has sent it away to save it from retribution, Sansa's direwolf is killed in its stead. In Winterfell, Bran awakes from unconsciousness. Meanwhile, Daenerys focuses her attention on learning how to please Drogo. <laughs> Tacked on there. Uh, we've talked end. about that a lot. I don't want. I don't want to linger on it anymore. It. It. This episode just doubles down on it, and and doesn't really do a lot to improve it. Uh, definitely. Uh, but yeah, so the rest of the stuff I want to talk about, though, uh, 
there they added some scenes in here that I really liked. And one that stood out in particular to me was there's a scene between Jamie and John mm-hmm. where he comes up to him and he's he's talking to him about the Night's Watch and this, you know, he says like, oh, what an illustrious brotherhood or whatever you're joining. And it gives the audience a good perspective on on what the Night's Watch is going to be, too, before we yeah. get there. It does a lot of good stuff. I think we also see how sort of in awe he's like he, he John has a really good mix of he, he's he's brave. He's standing up to Jamie, but he is also sort of in awe of him. Right. And this this does a good job of selling the legend of Jamie Lannister, the you know, the greatest swordsman in Westeros, which is a big part of his character that that um, we get in the books and and it, it's doing it through a lot of just, you know, showing, not telling in the way that they interact with each other. And I love that the the Jamie and Ned where they kind of talk about they kind of talking shit to each other, too. Yeah. Uh, and they're talking about a proper sword fight and like find me in the in combat. I would love to see this fight le- in a legitimate way, but it's just not, we get yeah. we're robbed of that. OK, so who who wins? Who wins in a straight up sword fight between Jamie Lannister and Ned at 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 this point in the book? If they were to, to have a throwdown, have a sword fight, who wins? Who do I want to win or who actually wins? Who actually wins? It's it's so tough. I, I who knows how much of Jamie's legend is that is just that. And like Ned has the experience to where maybe he could he could hold his own. But then we see later, you know, at the Tower of Tower of Joy, right? Yeah. The battle that we think he wins. Supposedly he tells Bran that he won that battle, but he had to get some backup to run it at the last second. So I'm gonna give the edge to Jamie because he's supposed to be the best swordsman in the land. So yeah, I think Jamie does. I it. agree. I I think um. I think the books do a really good job of selling just how talented Jamie is with the sword. Um, I, I don't necessarily think in an all out war, you know, that he would necessarily win against Ned, you know, you know, everything being kind of like in chaos. Um, Cause I think, I think Ned is clever. I think he, he's a great warrior, but yeah, I, I mean, if it's a straight up melee between these two one-on-one, I got to give the edge to Jamie for sure. Yeah. And what sucks is is George R. R. Martin robs us of that in like a later scene. It seems like Jamie and or sorry, not a later scene, a later episode actually later later in the book as well, where they're they both draw steel on each other, and then and then one of the Lannisters like runs up and stabs Ned in the back of the leg. So that is a great example of one of the things that I love about Martin and his his he he sort of deconstructs a lot of these expectations and 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 turns things on their head, and we expect like that sets up like oh we're gonna get a big we're going to get a big fight between Jamie and Ned is what you, you would be forgiven for thinking mm-hmm. here. Um, but we don't get that. And it's also, we are often robbed of the expected outcome and we're presented with an alternative one. And then we have to deal with like, how do we handle that? And um, I love that about Martin. And I wish that the showrunners would, would, would uh, keep more in line with that vision of fan of this fantasy world because mm-hmm. I do feel like in these later seasons, uh, it's gotten you know, pretty pretty happy. It, it's gotten pretty far away. We're getting a lot more of the expected outcomes. We're getting a lot more of uh, of just kind of filling in the blanks and and with the expected answers. Yeah, and, and but in uh, order to subvert expectations, you have to also have good things happen. You know, it's like had had like Jon Snow lost the Battle of the Bastards, people would be like, okay, well. At this point, it's like everything bad is going to happen, and then you're there's, the expectations are set, so you have to subvert them by something good happening. So I don't know. I think the yeah. ending of the show is ultimately going to going to determine how people feel about the show's subverting expectations. But I think uh, clearly George R. R. Martin does a better job at at planning them out and executing. 
Yeah, and, and it's not that he doesn't ever, because, I mean, he does. I mean, we look at some of the stuff that happens with Danny. Um, there are occasions where the thing that you want to happen does happen, and you can just cheer for it. Um, but it feels like those are few and far between, and much more often you get you get a complete inversion of the thing that you wanted to happen <laughs> uh, actually happening, and, and often that makes for just really interesting storytelling. But, yeah, we're getting into the weeds here, talking a little bit about future seasons and such, but... Uh, yeah, I just wanted to get that in while we're talking Game of Thrones, you know? That was, that's kind of my view of it. Yeah. In the second episode, another couple of characters that I did want to talk about were just John and Tyrion traveling together. And these are two of my favorite characters. I'm assuming they're two of your favorite characters as well. Absolutely. And just having them, uh, just having the wit of Tyrion and, and kind of the underdog nature of, of John and knowing like kind of how important he is and, and where he'll go. I, I love seeing them together and then it makes their reuniting much, much later very satisfying, just knowing that they have this built-in relationship. Well, and I, I love the uh, the patience they have with Jon Snow as a character because he is naive here. He has no idea what he's getting into, and they had to know the journey of this character was going to be really a huge arc, right? And it's going to mm-hmm. be one of, you know, Jon Snow is very much a coming-of-age tale, you know, set in the world of Game of Thrones, but it very much is. And it's it's a boy becoming a man. It's it's him learning the ways of the world and losing his naivete and all that stuff. And early on here, we we don't we see a lot of him being sort of an idealist and and being ignorant of the way the world is. And we see uh, Tyrion giving him some really valuable lessons. Mm-hmm. Um, I did note that we didn't get the ghost jumping on Tyrion and like biting him a little bit mm-hmm. scene that we get in the book. Um, that doesn't happen. Uh, I assume budgetary reasons. <laughs> it's just like, maybe it would have been too, too much. Um, I, you know, I think I, I, the scene was fine without it. So something that I didn't realize until, you know, season two or three, when I was watching through the show for the first time was, just the idea that that it's a song of ice and fire. Clearly, Danny's the fire, but I early on assumed that the White Walkers were the ice. But it's mm-hmm. John that's the ice, in my opinion. And I think that Could that be. I think that that I is like the importance of John is there from the beginning. If if you're looking for it, and he he his character is is I think that he's got like the most traditional hero's journey kind of thing going on and that's why i think he's like an endearing character that a lot of people relate to and and like and yeah just having Tyrion is like this wise sage in this moment this this that's like gone through some shit is it's great i like i said i it's fun to see their built-in relationship for later yeah there's a lot of interpretations of the ice and fire thing and and you could say that john is ice and fire in himself because he's a targaryen Uh, sorry huge spoiler <laughs> he is a Targaryen and a Stark. Um, yeah, we said spoilers early on in this episode, right? So I'm yeah. safe. <laughs> uh, hopefully, I didn't just spoil the shit out of somebody. Um, and and uh, so that could be it. You could look at the dragons and the White Walkers. I think that's kind of a surface level reading. You can look at Danny um, and and John. There's a lot of places you can look to look to for this this whole ice speaking and fire of, stuff. But. Speaking of Danny and and fire, how did you feel about her like walking into that hot spa and having the the handmaid behind her like the water's too hot and she just kind of sits yeah. in it? I know that was like partially from the book. This is a famous difference in the book and the show in that uh, Martin has said that her surviving the fire 
at the end of season one or at the was end of book one, off, one. Right? and 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 having the the dragons was a one-off event magical but event. i will say that in the book um, there was something to be said about danny saying that like she liked the water really hot like i remember reading that this most recent she's like i like the water really hot because i'm like i could say that too <laughs> doesn't mean yeah. i'm a targaryen magic person yeah doesn't it though yeah but i i think it is interesting to because the implication of the show shown repeatedly is that danny is immune immune to fire um, right. which is kind of a hack superpower. Um, it's been talked about uh, in other places, but have you ever thought about the idea that she could just like walk into a building and, you know, burn it to the ground with her dragons and be fine. Like that's a pretty hacks like ability, right? Like she, she could just do anything and just walk through the fire herself. The whole, the whole thing with the, the, the Sraki much later, she does that. Yeah. She just tips over fire yeah. and she survives it again, which I, that was the famous time that George R.R. came out and he was like, yeah, that's, that's not going to happen in the book. Yeah. Not going to happen in the book. So it's interesting. I don't know if, is it two hacks of power? I don't know. It's probably fine because they're not. They're probably not going to abuse it in the way that you could maybe abuse it <laughs> yeah. in real life. Uh, but yeah. Uh, so you saw that trailer, it, right? The new trailer. I did see. The There's new a trailer, lot of stuff yeah. to talk about in there, but John's definitely jumping on 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 uh, Rhaegal, hundred percent. You think? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, I mean, it's, it seems likely. So I something that I drew from it and I saw online was the. I mean. Um, Rhaegar is his father, right? And Rhaegal is the dragon he'll be riding. So yeah. Oh yeah, that's a good point. I didn't think about that. I like it. Uh, man, maybe we could talk about the the trailer more in like a bonus episode this month or something. Yeah, I'd like to. That'd be awesome. So how about this this conflict that goes on with Joffrey and and uh, Arya and Sansa and the Butcher's Boy? How do you yeah. think it plays in the show versus the book? Uh, I mean, we see Joffrey trying to kill Arya in the sh- in the show. Um, I totally believe that that is the implication of the scene in the book. Um, I mean, like we see some like some swings that clearly are meant to injure and or kill uh, coming from, from Joffrey. We see him calling her, I think more vicious names. Uh, it, it, it is a, um, it is a scene that makes Joffrey look really fucking bad. And that's good. Cause I think that that is right for the character. Uh, so I liked, it's like sort of remixed, but essentially the same. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember cheering, like I cheered for Nymeria. I had just cheered for Summer. Like, how cool is that moment with Summer attacking and then jumping up on the bed? I'm just like, oh, good boy. <laughs> it hurts my heart so bad knowing in the show how Summer goes down. Yeah. It just does I, not feel like he got his due. I really hope that it's different in the book or if it is the same, at least it's like given more weight. Cause I, I did yeah. feel like it was kind of a throwaway. Well, that was Hodor's moment in the show. It was, and it was like summer was just a fucking, was just a casualty. It was, it was, it was a huge bummer. Yeah. Which he deserves. He deserves more than that. Especially like his connection to brand. Like that's a, that's a death on its own. That yeah. should have been. Well, it's much bigger. It's episode. a much bigger thing in the book. Um, we see a lot more of a brand warging into summer, just like all the time in the book. Right. Like he's spending, a lot of time together as the as as some as summer basically and i don't remember that being as big a thing in the show um but yeah once again we're getting into the weeds <laughs> um so the biggest thing that stood out for me is the following scene where ned is has to like push his way up into the to stand in front of robert and Arya is being um reprimanded and that's all right out of the book um the only difference being renly's not there yet maybe um i do love the shoving the ned's shoving guys out of the way too something about that really made that scene for me i love that too yeah and but uh something that stood out to me and this is true in the book too um but it just in the show i really kind of landed on it 
Robert is pretty cowardly here, in my opinion, when he refuses to order the death himself, right? Because he's getting ready to walk away, and Ned says, is this your order? Is this what you want? And then Rob just look, uh, Robert just looks at him and then storms out. Well, and then in Ned's eyes, it's like he, he doesn't pass the sentence and doesn't swing the sword. Yeah, exactly. That's an inversion of that of the of the values of the Northern Way of, of of you know what I mean. It's him distancing himself from the death he's just ordered. Um, you're right, and I think that is all there, um, and, and and it's it's kind of damning for Robert and shows that he has changed. Um, but the other thing I think it also shows is the hold the Lannisters have on him, and the what sort of like politics has done to him. And and I think Robert is aware of it, right? And maybe a little bit of ashamed of it. I don't know. And then, but then it's also like there's a little bit of that, like you're not gonna, you know, I'm the king, not you. So you're not gonna force me to say something yeah. I don't want to say. He wants to have the easy life at this point. He's like, I can have this easy life, so I'm just gonna live it till I die. Like he says multiple times, he just wants to drink and whore his way to an early death, and that's literally yeah. what he's doing. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, that was it. Was a, I was. In 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 fiction, I was frustrated with Robert and 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 disappointed with him really for not standing up to Cersei here. Um, so the other big change is we don't get the moment that I thought hit hardest for me in the book, and that's Ned um, having four of his men take the body of Lady to the North, and and the whole like you know the Lannister woman won't get this pelt and all that stuff. Like we don't get any of that in the show. I did miss that line. Yeah, it was a moment that I really it really made me like Ned. Um, and I thought it was a really, it showed like the content of his character in a way, I guess that I really enjoyed that, that I think is, is a little bit lacking. Now we like Ned in the show too. So I, I'll, obviously they're able to do a lot of it without that little bit. Um, but yeah, it's just one of those things that as a book reader that I really loved that part and I, I was missing it a little bit in the show. Yeah. I mean, it just has that little nuanced bit to his, to his character and, and yeah, I love that. They also invert the scenes between the death of Lady and the Hound, uh, showing that he's run run down the butcher's boy, um, and that and that I think also highlights the difference. I think there is already a difference between Sander Clegging in the show and Sander Clegging in the books, mm-hmm. and I think that does carry through. Um, he seems in the show he he just seems more run down, yeah, as as opposed to in the book he seems like a, a crazy person. Yeah, and I think he's more likable in the show. I think they do mm-hmm. a lot to make him a little bit more likable in the show. Now, he still, you know, does some terrible things, but, um, yeah, Sander Clegging in the books, uh, I don't know, just a subtle difference in that personality that that makes him seem a lot more dangerous and, and yeah, maybe less, uh, <laughs> less likable. <laughs> yeah, and there's a couple, so there's a couple of foreshadowing moments that, that in hindsight, are, are very very evident when the hound first comes into town and he's on the, he is the the helmet the the hound helmet on yeah and he's riding in they the reaction shot they cut to is aria which i found right. to be just kind of a, this moment of foreshadowing that they must have seen and known was coming i'm pretty sure they were up to that point in the books when when they were filming the first episode yeah and then another one was i mean another one is just like blatantly obvious if you if you knew where the show was going but just Danny's fascination with her dragon eggs when she's given the dragon eggs and how much she lingers on them and how much the fire is around them and she's always she even during that rape scene like looks at them and smiles which again super fucked up 
did she smile she like <laughs> slightly sm- slightly like yeah she was like basically crying and super sad and then she looks over at the dragon eggs and like smiles a little bit yeah that's interesting what are they trying to say there i don't know yeah you're right and i do think there are signs throughout this where it's like they know more of like what's coming and so they're they're doing a lot of groundwork and sort of foreshadowing and, and linking things symbolically. Um, there's a lot of those little things in here for sure. Um, one of the things that I that I really liked was the the when Lady dies, we get a cut to, um, uh, well, it's even when even when Lady's being threatened, we see Summer reacting and like whining mm-hmm. and stuff on the bed, right? So there's a really good job like supernatural connection being established there. Which just highlights the tragedy. Between all the dogs as well, which all the wolves I really enjoy. Yeah, which that's something we get like later in book one, I think. But it's 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 doing a good job here of introducing it early. Mm -hmm. So just from a production standpoint, I wanted to talk about one scene that I thought was like a little on the nose. But what did was effective and I did like Uh, there's the moment when the Maester and Catelyn are basically telling Ned to go south or not to go south um you know to to become the hand of the king and the the, oh and they're on either side of his shoulders yeah 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 it's like framed up like that i mean it's like you know it's a kind of a cliche shot it's angels on the shoulder type thing but it works and i think it's effective and what i did like is like as catelyn's argument was was waning they like go to the maester and like kind of tell like with the shot tell you what his decision is rather than him saying like okay i'll be the hand and then we kind of just get the like the characters within the next dialogue scene saying like going south is going to be difficult and all this stuff like we know we kind of get his his decision is made off screen even though we get it from a camera movement which i just kind of thought was fun and clever it was clever and i I like that i like that framing you're right so what for you because i we talked about the scene um of ladies execution uh did it hit you as hard in the show or 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 in the book like what was the what was the what was the more emotional okay so there's something we said for for something happening in live action and and actually getting the sound effect of a of a dog in pain but ultimately that was tough like it was definitely not easy but there like the build-up and the Ned's honorable line about how how Cersei's never gonna have the pelt and all all of that. Um, I, I like the book more for that scene. Yeah, me too. And and I don't know. There might be a little bit of the sort of thing of like that's the thing that I just experienced. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I experienced it after not for a while. <laughs> so in that sense, it was like more fresh at the time. And then now it's like reliving it. Something I just read about last week. Uh, yeah. So that might have an effect. Um, but yeah, I agree. I think the books did it better. And I think uh, the one thing the show has going for it, yeah, is like seeing how cute that they really made that dire wolf look cute. I think it has like a pink ribbon hanging on, you know, lady has like a pink ribbon and stuff like, you know, she seems so innocent and and they really highlight that in the show, which is definitely sad. Um, yeah. But I do like that. I think the heart of it is that Ned does it himself. And I think that is the important thing, the really important thing from that scene that it is it is a thing that he does not want to have done yet he says if it's gonna have to if it's gonna happen i'm gonna do it myself he's not gonna let you know uh sir ill Payne do it yeah um so that that is directly tied to that whole northern way like you said uh so it kind of bookends these two episodes in a nice way which i which i do like and and i know i've I, we've, we've we've pointed out our problems with it and 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 gripes and and things that i've you know over time have changed but I do love this show and I love that this, that this 
adaptations happened. I think it's gonna it does wonders for the fantasy genre and legitimizing it in the eyes of the public and making it seem like valid adult serious storytelling. Um, not just seem, but like shows off that it is. And uh, I think this show has also, through a lot of its own mistakes, done a good job of highlighting a lot of issues. Um, there's a lot of articles I read um, about like the male gaze and stuff that, that came out in response to Game of Thrones. Yeah. And so I think in a lot of ways, um, maybe not through, not, not on purpose, but it has served as an important piece of culture and it has, has brought up a lot of interesting topics and, and has taught me a lot. Um, and then, yeah, I've just, I do genuinely enjoy the show. And um, even though I'm always that book first purist, um, you know, I, I, I do enjoy it. And I, I hope that I've come off uh, at least uh, somewhat as like, this is a positive thing that I do enjoy, not just completely negative, which I worry I may have sounded yeah. like. <laughs> like I've said before, it's, it's, I think it's my favorite show. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's the scale and the epic nature of it and the genre that it's in. It's just, it's so much fun. And yeah, it has its issues, and I think most things do have issues. And this one, you know, yeah. clearly is no excusing some of the stuff that that goes on. And uh, right, but like you said, I think they have taken strides to to get better as time has gone on. And I think it'll be remembered really fondly for a long time. And I'm so happy to to be diving into more of it in the coming weeks and leading up to the to the final season. Yeah, and and the effect that it has on the industry and the shows that we're going to get based off of, you know what I mean? Because there's going to be a appetite for this sort of thing now that uh, I think we're already seeing the effects of it. Um, and I, I'm just, I, I, I don't think, you know... I mean, this show brought about a huge, like this show, in addition to a few others, brought about really the renaissance of TV and, and the golden age that we live in and, and yeah. the quality and production value that every show is bringing nowadays. So I think yeah. that this was this was one of those flag bearers coming in and, and making really great TV accessible for everybody. Yeah, and I think it demonstrated that that really genre, very heavy genre stuff, can have a wide appeal and can do well, you know, on TV and not just in feature films, and uh, that it can be something that the larger culture and population enjoys and it's not just for the niche comic-con crowd you know um which has become itself a large part of our culture obviously <laughs> but i think game of thrones is a big part of that um yeah. and and i don't want to undersell that def definitely well i mean i think that that's a great place to leave it we are going to be covering the next four episodes in the show and all the chapters that chapters that encompass all of that as well yeah. so be looking out for that and if you're reading along definitely check out those chapters yeah, I mean, I'm really excited. This is still, you know, this is this is like the project I've been looking forward to for a long time. So I'm I'm so excited for that. Um, but yeah, I wanted to thank uh, Mary Boland Doyle for being a Patreon supporter of us. Uh, if you want to learn how to become one yourself, go to patreon.com forward slash ink to film and you can see all the things we're offering for our patrons. Also, if you wanted to connect with us on social media, we're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. All of those at ink to film. And check out our Facebook group, the Council of Inklings. We post polls and any kind of adaptation news we see coming up in there. Absolutely. And uh, I mentioned earlier, but make sure to subscribe. That is like the most important metric, apparently, for our rankings in the charts and stuff. I just saw today that we've ranked as high as like 26 or no, 19 on uh, Stitcher. 
apparently, and their arts and entertainment uh, section. So that's cool to know. Um, but apparently those rankings are all based off su subscriber numbers. So make sure to subscribe. Uh, that helps us out a ton. Beyond that, uh, leaving our, our rating and a review on whatever you listen to is super helpful um, and, and always helps get the word out. We wanted to thank Jennifer Delazana for providing our transcripts. And thank you to Ramsey's B for the use of our intro and outro music. All right, man. I'm looking forward to it. And until next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks.